0: Well, uh, good morning to you. Uh, Will you turn with me, please, uh, in your Bibles uh, to Mark chapter 9? Mark uh, chapter 9, as we continue uh, to ask a question of what's he like uh, when we consider the Lord Jesus uh, in this part of uh, Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 9, we're going to read together um, from verse number 30. Mark chapter 9, and we'll read from verse 30. And this is what God says. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. I'm going we'll end our reading at verse 41. I wonder um, who was the greatest distance runner uh, in your uh, opinion. Was it Seb Coe? Uh, was it Haligabr Selassie? You remember him? Uh, was it uh, Mo Farah? Uh, the World Athletics um, are on at the moment uh, in uh, in Qatar, uh, and they have uh, world records uh, to, to compare people uh, across the passage of time, don't they? They can tell uh, if you've broken the world record. Who was the greatest singer? Uh, who was the greatest fashion designer? Who was the greatest Formula One driver? These are the, the sort of discussions that people have all the time as they socialize with friends. But they're not just popular culture discussions. Christians talk this way too. Who was the greatest missionary uh, to the Far East? Who was the most successful evangelist in your time? Uh, who was the most powerful preacher you've ever heard? We like to talk greatest too. We like to talk greatest. And perhaps uh, we even secretly wish we had our name in lights. I would have to have my name changed to exit to get that, but uh, perhaps we dream um, about fame and recognition. Uh, maybe you want uh, that for your children or your, or your grandchildren even. This morning, we're on about definitions, and we're still very much on that same track of the definition of the word Messiah, the term Messiah here, uh, or Christ in this part of Mark chapter 9. The disciples have this glorious idea in mind when they think about Messiah. Uh, they think about a political ruling force who's going to come and crush all before him, uh, even the Romans, the Romans and all. This idea has, has only been increased uh, since uh, what three of them have witnessed uh, up on the Mount of Transfiguration a few verses back. But despite uh, Jesus' attempts to address this, they still can't seem to get it out of their minds. They're on the same track, for what a Messiah would look like. But this morning we see, firstly, that it's God's plan, not theirs. From verse 30, uh, Jesus makes another attempt to correct these misconceptions, these misunderstandings. Uh, they, they're now passing through Galilee, we're told, uh, the, the north end of, uh, of Israel, uh, where Jesus spent most of his uh, three years of ministry. Uh, and they're, they're passing through it privately, uh, Jesus doesn't want a big crowd distracting them. He, uh, Jesus has to, wants to devote uh, time on a, on, a, on a small basis, uh, in a small group basis, setting uh, with his disciples because he's something important to teach them. He's uh, assumed uh, the role of, of rabbi uh, with his students. That would have been very common uh, in that day, a very common sight. In verse 31, he teaches them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. The Son of Man is uh, Jesus' uh, preferred name to refer to himself. Uh, remember that um, back, I don't know, 40 verses or so before, Peter has declared Jesus to be the Christ, uh, the Messiah. But uh, a Messiah... Uh, dying at the hands of men was a was a contradiction in terms, according to any popular view of the day of what a Messiah would do. The Christ was to be was to be a glorious king, uh, from Psalm two. That's what it says. He he was to be in the line of the great king uh, David. His kingdom was to be everlasting. But Jesus has no heirs to carry on his kingdom, so. To die was the end of that reign, and that that didn't make any sense. And the resurrection uh, was a general resurrection by popular opinion, uh, for that's the only resurrection that anyone has heard of. This is the way Martha speaks when uh, Jesus goes to her home in Bethany, and Lazarus has died, and and, uh, Jesus tells her that he'll rise again in John 11. and, And Martha says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That's the resurrection that people have heard of. The Messiah was a glorious king, and he surely wouldn't die. And the resurrection was not a three days later matter, as Jesus has just said. It was a general resurrection of of all the righteous at the end of the age, at the end of all things. That's what the rabbis taught, the teachers of the law, but not this teacher. To our eyes, and looking back, Jesus couldn't have been any more clear here in verse 31. It's all there. Jesus himself, dead at the hands of men, rising after three days. What could be hard to understand about his mission? But we have none of those assumed beliefs of the culture of that day to contend with, about what a Messiah was, about what the resurrection meant. We have our own assumed beliefs of our own day, of course, to contend with. Uh, Weeds, you could put it like that, that need clearing before the gospel can take root. That's uh, why evangelism is so hard today and slow. Assumed beliefs. Yes, we get it from verse 31. But we have the benefit of lots of things. Uh, We have the whole New Testament. They didn't. We have uh, the benefit of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. They didn't. We have Romans 3. We have Romans 8. They didn't. Uh, We have the benefit of the privilege of of a heritage of good Bible teaching in our land. And verse 32 is, is clear here. The disciples simply didn't understand. And they were even afraid to ask Jesus about it. Perhaps... That was because of their desire to look good inside the pool of disciples that were gathered. The next section shows this more clearly. Perhaps no one wanted to admit that he was less clued in than anyone else. A bit like if your line manager or boss asks you if you're up to speed on that latest instruction from head office. And you nod and agree to see a face when the truth be told you haven't a clue for you haven't read it. But the next round of promotions are due, and so it's best to keep things sweet. God's plan is not the human way. It's often the opposite to human logic and methods. Uh, as people, as people, uh, we would have an earthly king come and, and crush all before him. We think physical because we're physical creatures, but God works differently. He has, he has greater wisdom. He sees the whole tapestry from the front, uh, spiritual and physical. He, he sees in the other realm as well. God's ways uh, is to send uh, a rescuer uh, who will come in weakness, who will come to suffer first, uh, to die, to, to be a sacrifice, uh, who, who will come to, to rewrite the story of greatness, who will die on the cross in an act of barbarism that will in fact turn out to be glorious, We're often surprised by circumstances. How can this be the right way, God? Are words that many of us have used. Why is this happening to me? Ever said that? How can this fall have happened? How, How can that relationship have broken down? How can I be facing redundancy? How can that mental breakdown have occurred? I really didn't need that, God. How can this be the right way? David was talking about this the other week, that, that, and it's, it's so true. It's helpful in, 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 in moments like that to think about the cross. Because when you look at the cross, uh, you see God at work in the most unlikely of circumstances, and that helps us a lot. We see his sovereign plan at work in the most amazing way, bringing such good from such undesirable horror. And that helps us in whatever we face in life. We didn't expect it. But God's at work, for he's always at work. Behind the curtain in the unseen spiritual realm that's just as real but not visible, working his plan that's in place for his glory and for our good, that's a great comfort to us. I want to encourage you in that this morning. Secondly, notice it's God's ranking, not yours. God's rank, not yours. In verse 33, the party of disciples and Jesus have arrived in Capernaum. And this is at the home of Jesus. This is where Jesus lives. Uh, Again, Jesus takes on the role of rabbi, uh, this time in his own home. But uh, we see more than a little glimpse of his deity. What were you discussing on the way? Jesus asked the question. Not because he doesn't know uh, what they are discussing; they have been discussing on the way. uh, When his divine nature is on display, it allows him to know people's thoughts. We've seen this before. No, he doesn't ask the question because he doesn't know. He asks the question like a teacher asks a question, and we have some teachers in the congregation this morning. No, he doesn't ask the question because uh, because of that. but, But 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 he. He's doing the teacher thing. You know, class, does anyone know the square root of 64? It's not that the teacher doesn't know. It's because he's, she's continuing to teach. He's making a teaching point. But they don't answer again, even Peter. Thoughts of glory and prominence have gone into their minds, like when a new manager Comes available, or comes to a football club, and there are positions in the team up for grabs. Or a new Prime Minister comes along, and, and his cabinet that has got seats that need to be filled, they're up for grabs, and, and there's jostling for position. The disciples are dreaming of status and honor and, and are, are talking amongst themselves to see who's the greatest. Well, I'm definitely better than you. And well, I'm probably better than you. Uh, and, and everyone's own. Disciples' league table. They're, they're, they're further up than they actually are. or Somebody's near the top and thinks they are close to it. This is like when James and John uh, come to Jesus in the next chapter and give arguably the least selfish prayer uh, prayed in Scripture. Grant to us one to sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. The disciples knew that Jesus would not be impressed. And so they keep silent. And Jesus sits down in the house and he gathers the disciples around him just as any rabbi would in the day. And he delivers his teaching point. And then he gives them an example uh, to back it up. The teaching point's there in verse 35. If anyone would be first he must be last of all and servant of all. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Notice, Jesus is not saying that greatness or prominence is wrong. He's not disgusted by by the idea of it. No, rather, what Jesus does is to totally redefine it. He's already redefined Messiah, okay, according to popular opinion, and now he's going to redefine greatness. To be great, to be prominent in God's eyes, is very different from what it means to be great in the world's eyes. What does it mean to be great in the world's eyes? What does it mean uh, in our own eyes when we think like everyone else in terms of what great is? It means... Having a position of prominence, uh, maybe having to knock others down to get there, but you know what? Individual culture uh, thinks it's worth it. It means having great skill and power, great self confidence, maybe being able to, 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 to know how great you are. What did Muhammad Ali say? I'm the greatest. It means you have celebrity status, you have a big Twitter following. On Instagram, following, something like that. It means that people want to get close to you, uh, to be associated with you, to live under your shadow. Uh, You travel around first class, this kind of thing, isn't it? Uh, It means you have all your menial tasks done for you. I'm quite sure Prince Harry isn't great at the old dishes. I'm pretty sure this week Melania Trump didn't get the hoovering done. You know the idea? You have employees for that. (coughs) Servants in the ancient world. Greatness is for the gifted and the privileged. Greatness means to be first in the queue. But Jesus turns, up, turns that on its head completely. He flips the league table upside down. That's what he does. For Jesus, to be great means not to be first, but to be last. Not to lord it over others, but to be beneath them is the idea. He says the first is the last The league table is upside down. I'm reading um, a biography of George Whitfield at the moment. He's well known as one of the greatest of preachers. Uh, He preached with power and fire in his belly. He preached on many thousands that came to faith at the time of the Great Awakening in the United States in the 18th century and also in England. He was a big deal. But Whitfield himself was very modest. He was self-effacing. He, he, he didn't draw attention to himself. He didn't care much about what people thought. He didn't organize his notes, for he didn't even think anybody would want to read them. So trying to piece it all back together again was a nightmare for his biographers. He was happy to be thought of as last. He was happy to be modest. And all the best people are humble like that. But notice that Jesus goes even further. He says that the one who would be first must not just be last, but servant of all, which is lower again. My late, um, my late grandfather used to be great at a game called drafts. Uh, you know that game? Anybody know drafts, yeah? It's played on a chess board with uh, round counters. Some people call it checkers. I, that's, I call it drafts. But, but my grandfather was impossible to beat. But he had this alternative version where the rules were reversed. And, he didn't, and, and, and to win, you didn't try to get all the other person's counters by taking them. No, you had to lose all your counters to win the game. We called it givers. I was better at that, but still always lost. Jesus challenges the disciples and all of us to be great in the eyes of God. And what, that requires us to be great in things that matter to God. And, and what matters to God more than giving? Reversing the rules. And what's the greatest form of giving? It's giving of yourself. It's being a servant, isn't it? Tim Keller has a, a short book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He talks about the problem of of talking yourself up and and pride and self-promotion on one hand, the sort of thing you see on The Apprentice every week. Uh, but, But the other problem at the other end of the scale is the equal and opposite problem of putting yourself down endlessly so you can't do anything. I'm just no good at that. I couldn't serve God in that. And the solution is, rather than fall down in either position is that it's better not to think about ourselves that much. That's, the, that's what the book says. I think that's great. We don't talk ourselves up. We don't talk ourselves down. It's not thinking about ourselves, uh, because then we've got time to think about others. That's the way he puts it. Jesus drives home the point by giving two examples. Firstly, he finds a child, and he puts him in the middle of the disciples, and then he takes him in his arms, and he refers to this child as someone that his followers should serve. Now, again, this is culturally very different from where we are today. Because we value children. People, people even go so far as to almost live their lives through their children, but think children should be seen and not heard, and then some. Children in Jesus' day are unnoticed, they are irrelevant. They're the lowest of the low in the pecking order. You you, you don't feed your children first like we do. You feed them last. Okay? And to receive a lowly nobody of a child, to care for a child, to lift them in your arms like Jesus does, to to serve a child with with such a low status is to show something of Christ's view of greatness. Greatness. The way verse 37 is written, to receive a child is to receive Jesus himself. That means to accept Jesus, to, to have a relationship with Jesus, to, to serve him as one who has accepted and is in a relationship with him. You have to serve someone like this child. The, the second part there needs a little bit of care and translation. Whoever receives Jesus receives not Whoever receives a child receives not only me. We need an only in there uh, to help make sense of the. Uh, it's like a turn of phrase expression. Whoever receives uh, him receives not only me, but also the one who sent me, is, is the way it works. Whoever receives me receives not only me, but him who sent me. And that's God the Father, isn't it? Who sent Jesus? God the Father. You want to go right to the top? You want to be associated with the top being in the universe? You want to be associated with the greatest? You must be willing to serve the lowest of the low. In Jesus' name. That's what he's teaching. Who's that today? It's not a child. It's the drug addict. It's the prostitute. It's the homeless. It's the ones who you know full well will probably end up back in the same mess... It's the, the one who has let you down a thousand times. The one who, 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 who treat you awfully when you try with them. Isn't it? For the gospel. With the gospel. For Christ. As an act of love for Christ. And for people. As a way of serving Christ. It's very clear, isn't it? The word for servant here is diakonos. That, that's where we get our word for deacon. Uh, the office in the church uh, of those who serve. And we say, that's great. We do If we're not a deacon, we're all right. But no, <laughs> Jesus is not speaking to, about an office in the church. Those are, who serve as deacons are, are examples of, of this. But, but Jesus' statement is much wider than that. He's showing the disciples what it would mean for anyone to follow him, to have a relationship with him. Uh, so it applies just the same today. It's servanthood. Now, this sounds like a very bad deal, because I mean, how how can you be how can you be happy if you have to serve someone else? I mean, that's that, that's a position of pity, a position of unhappiness, a position of hardship. I, I mean, I, I saw this um, in an airport over the summer. There was this well dressed woman uh, out in front. Uh, leading the line and, and her children are in two behind her. And, and among the children they have this there's this live in nanny from, from some economically poor country and you're thinking, pity the servant. But not here. When Jesus teaches about service, it's it's not a, a, something that deserves pity or the assumption of unhappiness or, or 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 hardship. That's that's not that's not what he's talking about. No, again, it's the opposite to what you might expect. Jesus teaches us again and again that it's a, that it's a joy to serve God. It's, it's, a, it's an act of love. It's an act of devotion. It, it overflows from a heart that, that has received God's love. And is overflowing, and so, it, so it, it wants to love others. Psalm 100 opens with these words. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. In 2 Corinthians 6, um, Paul writes about being a servant. It's a lengthy passage, but I, I think it's important. I'll read it to you. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and in the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. You hear the opposites? It's not how it's it's supposed to be, according to worldly logic, but it's completely different. Uh, Gospel servants are rejoicing and possessing everything. And there are rewards. Isn't verse 41 clear? God rewards those who serve him. You know, it's not all things equal in heaven. Do you know that? There are rewards to be received. The passage is very clear. In God's ranking of his disciples, it's not who you might think that appear at the top. The great ones, and there are great ones, right, are those who serve in menial ways. It's those who are willing to serve in any way. The least and the lowest. That's what it means to receive Christ to welcome him into your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's that's what he wants you to be like. Verse 37 has a clear cause and effect. You want to have fellowship with Christ, then that comes from serving him in the lowest of ways. Finally, this morning we see that it's God's kingdom not ours. The Apostle John, uh, from verse 38 onwards, has a bit of a problem, uh, and he brings it to the teacher for his comment. Please, teacher, can I speak to you? You can sort of imagine the thing, can't you? Someone has been um, casting out demons, and this has caused a bit of a stir. And would you believe it, they're doing it in Jesus' name. They're serving in Jesus' name. Now, That's exactly the same form of words that Jesus has been using in verse 37 when speaking about serving a child in his name. John says that he and the other disciples have have, have seen this and decided that that's not on and tried to stop him. Remember last week uh, how they had been unsuccessful in casting out a demon from a young boy to the other nine disciples? Perhaps that was part of the motivation to stop them. But it is also certainly the case that John thinks that this person is a rival. It's the way he's he's putting it across, isn't it? They are part of another faction for John. That, That John's and the other followers' faction is the only faction. Isn't that the way he's thinking? Jesus says it's not. This is not the empire of 12 men, John. This is the kingdom of God. This is much larger than your group. This is much larger than any group. Jesus says that if they're doing a mighty work in his name, then they won't speak evil of him. In other words, they're on his side. And then to clarify, the one who is not against us is for us. They're on the same side, Jesus says. It's not your kingdom. It's much bigger. It's God's kingdom. In in Northern Ireland, uh, we have this uh, 100% or 0% tendency. Uh, at times um, that have resulted in separation of brothers and sisters and splits and and when reconciliation was was much better. This has spawned many dozens of little works and, and living room fellowships that meet on this very day. Now, we don't accept those who do not belong to Christ at all, and we need to take great care in these matters your elders need to take great care. But we're not the only believers, and we do well to realize this. If there's uh, clarity on the gospel, uh, where the Bible is faithfully taught, uh, where what it says is, is plainly, uh, plainly says it is obeyed in good conscience, uh, where the, the primary doctrines are in place, then wherever it is, and whatever it is called, there are brothers and sisters. There are Christian believers, and we're not rivals, we're on the same side. It's God's kingdom. It's never our empire. George Whitfield uh, has this great rival. Uh, his name was John Wesley. Many people know this story. They came from two different theological camps, uh, the Calvinists and the Wesleyan Methodists. Okay, And they disagreed on certain points of doctrine. Wesley would, was asked one time, uh, whether or not he would see Whitfield in heaven. And there was something of a gasp as he said no. But they needed to let him finish. He said, do not misunderstand me, madam. George Whitfield was so bright a star in the firmament of God's glory and will stand so near the throne that that one like me, who am less than the least, will never catch a glimpse of him. Now, that's a humble position, isn't it? That's a generous position. They disagreed on secondary matters, but they importantly held to the same gospel. Jesus reiterates the main teaching point in verse 41 as we come to a close. Even giving a cup of water to one who serves Christ is an act of service. Very simple thing. It's almost like nothing. But yet God notices it. The simplest of deeds... Please consider before God this morning how, how you're serving him. That's what, that's what we're to do here. Uh, what sort of servant am I? It doesn't just happen in the context of church. Of course not. But this is our spiritual family. This is your spiritual family. And so we, we serve here for sure. We put our shoulder to the plow here for Sure. I wonder, is there anyone who would consider giving their name to, to Billy Allen for the cleaning rota? That, that's a menial task. It takes about forty five minutes on a Saturday. I know Saturdays are precious, but we're serving the Lord. I wonder, would someone consider the need to, to give their name to Janice for the crash rota, which is a little bit tight at the moment? Yes, that takes you out of church. In the morning, but, and of course we have the evening service where we, 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 we seek to, to feed um, from God's word again. What about the AV team? Uh, they could certainly do with a, another one or two names on the road, and Maybe you would need a little bit of training, but we can organize that. And, and there are many, many other ways to serve, of course. We have enough people to run this ship, but we need servants to do it. Perhaps you're serving in lots of ways, and many people do. But maybe we need to ask what way our heart leans towards it. It could just be duty. It could just be, be grim and bear it. It could be just cold and transactional. But if we serve Christ in these ways, we, we aren't to do it from duty. We're to do it from love. Isn't that right? We do it because that's what it means to receive and love Christ. And that's a, that's a love relationship. We're deeply loved by Christ, and, and, and that's all we can do to love him back. The second example that Jesus gives is not fully shown in this passage, but it comes to view uh, as the gospel of Mark unfolds. For Jesus does this himself. He serves the low and the lowest of the low. He serves sinners, sinners like, like me, like, like you, uh, the lowest. Uh, he serves them with all that he is and all that he has. Uh, he sets his face towards Jerusalem for, for them. He, he dies on a cross for us, uh, paying the price for our sins by taking him on himself their sin, our sin, and, and giving uh, them his righteousness and goodness as an exchange when we trust in him. He serves them even though he knows they'll let him down. Even though he knows they don't deserve it. Even though he knows that they might end up back doing something. But, you know, he loves them anyway. And he wants them to come back. And and, and he longs and he waits for them. Jesus shows them his own example. And he predicts here a glorious act of illogical redemption. And as he rises from the grave, his victory is shown. His sacrifice has been accepted. He, it, it's, it, he's done it, and God will give him a name that is above every name. And, and, and at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, for He's the greatest. You remember Philippians two? That's what it says. You want to be a Christian, and you have to live this way. This is not advice. This is this is this is what God's word says. In humility like Christ, for the sake of others, like Christ. Greatness is not for the gifted or privileged. It's for every believer, and it's there in the simple task of service. You want to be great, then you serve God. And serving God means serving others. For this is what he has commanded us to do. Let's bow our heads together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we bow before you in humility, knowing our place before you. And we come and we ask for your grace to enable to put into practice what your word is so clearly saying. Give us help to not seek to be first by our own definition or by any uh, common uh, definition these days, but according to what Christ says, in humble service, serving even the least and the lowest with the gospel, because that is what it means to be a Christian. We ask for your help in the working out of this, in in what we should do with those that we meet, and what we should do with our time, Father, and what we should do in serving you uh, inside um, our church family, Father. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing um, together, Take My Life and Let It Be, uh, the Chris Tomlin version, and then we'll come together around uh, the Lord's table together.